Hello, listeners. This is Brooke, and I am calling all memoirists. Every spring and fall, I lead some sort of memoir experience, and this spring's course is coming up starting on Tuesday, March 14th. I'll be partnering with Linda Joy Myers, president of the National Association of Memoir Writers, for six weeks of craft and writing. In all the years we've been doing these intensives, we've always been more lecture-focused or guest-focused, so we decided it was time to invite you to write with us. So each class will be focused on a theme, and there will be some teaching, but also writing prompts, or we invite you to work on your memoir in progress. So we'll be writing this spring. We'll be reviewing and giving you feedback on a submission, which we are excited about. We'd love to spend these six weeks with you. So check out our class, which is called Reignite Your Inspiration at www.magicofmemoir.com. Hello, craft honers, deep readers, and revisionists. I'm Brooke Warner, and I'm here with Grant Faulkner, my incredibly observant co-host. And Grant, uh, you know, it wasn't easy to pinpoint a theme for this week's show, and it's because our interviewee, Janine Olette, she does a lot of things. You know, she's a published author of a memoir and a children's book, and she's uh, writing a novel right now as well. She's a coach, and she's someone who writes a popular substack. And so, like so many creatives, she's wearing a lot of hats. And she's also been on my radar for a long time as someone who other people I know absolutely adore. She does retreats and teaches classes, and she's an amazing writer. And so I was piecing together this picture of her as an observer, you know, that she's someone who thinks about writing a lot. uh, And it's probably what draws people to her in the first place, you know, that she's doing a lot of commenting and observing about the process of writing. And there's also something deeper that I wanted to draw us into today. And that's just about observing what other creatives are doing, uh, and then how we learn from that or apply that to our own work. And I know that you've shared on the show that the worst advice you ever got was to copy what other bestsellers were doing and then to try to do that, which is, of course, bad advice in its own right um, for so many reasons. But you've also talked about how early on in your career you were trying to emulate the greats and you did that for a while. So I was curious if you could talk more specifically about that. Like, I remember you were saying you're trying to write like Carver, Uh, you know, was that about his style or his craft? And, you know, what were you hoping to teach yourself, you know, in executing other people's writing styles? Yeah, and I should note, Brooke, that by ignoring that advice, I have never written a bestseller. So, <laughs> well just, done. <laughs> just to qualify that a little bit, I've proudly never written a bestseller. But yeah, I um, I've emulated just a lot of writers, and sometimes I struggled with that. I, I um, thought of it as a weakness, but I actually now think of it as a strength. And the reason I thought of it, of it as a weakness was that I was not kind of honoring myself by doing that. And I'm thinking of, you know, I went through a Raymond Carver period, a James Salter period, a Natalie Sereau period, a Teju Cole period, a Lydia Davis period, Rachel Cuss, Sigrid Nunez, and others. And I think what appeals to me about a writer is their sensibility and their aesthetic and the way they see and feel the world around them. And then the voice they give to that and voice meaning just the way they intone their stories and the way they touch the reader and and really the intimacy they create. So I think of emulation not as a weakness, but as a way to try on different selves and to experiment with yourself and to hopefully find yourself in the end. 
but perhaps find isn't even the right word because you're you're really shaping yourself and your words through this process. You know, we're constantly changing creatures, and one way we change is through the stories we read and experience. So uh, I'm curious, Brooke, if you're trying to do this now, or do you read other memoirists' work and consider how you can implement what they're doing? Uh, you know, that you love into your own memoir. Definitely, you know, previous to actually starting the memoir, I think I was doing that unconsciously. And now that I've really started it in earnest more so, uh, people will remember, or I've talked about the fact that we had Carmen Maria Machado teach for us in our fall memoir series. Uh, and she shared in that class about, uh, like, before she found a container for In the Dream House, that the book that she was writing was really boring to her. And that resonated for me about the importance of finding an organizing principle. I'm really interested in that. And I felt curious about that when I was reading Janine's book, Today's Guest, uh, The Part That Burns, because I think she found a really interesting organizing principle for her book. And I'm going to ask her about that in the interview. Uh, but I am paying attention to people's structures, like a lot. Um, and I also am paying attention to devices that other people are using. So this, uh, you know, can be things like how certain writers are doing like maybe a whole chapter in the second person, or sometimes I'll see memoirists have interludes between chapters. Uh, in Janine's case, she did a lot of unconventional stuff, you know, like using uh, subheads within a chapter, which is not common. And I'm working with a writer right now who's going to have prescriptive lessons between her chapters. And this is actually not uncommon when you have something like a hybrid memoir. Uh, she herself is an important and well-known teacher. And so we thought of this little idea to like package her takeaways in, in lessons. Uh, so there's all of that stuff that I'm paying attention to. And then and then there's just the people whose work I want to better understand, like my obsession with Kiese Lehman. I never hope I, I could never hope I should say to write like he does, but I am very much interested in how he writes because like, I love how he plays with lists and repetition of words. And I want to execute that kind of thing in my own memoir, but in my own style. Right. So I think that that's what is important to keep in mind. Uh, but of course, I'm still in the what happened draft. And so I'm just, you know, taking notes, I'm rereading things, I'm listening to audiobooks, I'm taking it all in. Uh, and I just want to read and listen to as much as I can and kind of like, feeling like I'm absorbing it. Um, and yeah, I want to hold myself to a high standard, but that's also intimidating. It can definitely be intimidating, but it, I think it can also be inspiring. You know, one of my favorite things to do is to read novels that are similar to the one I'm writing. So I'll essentially be studying a novel and learning from it as I write my novels. The two novels are in conversation with each other, essentially. And I like to do this as a study in craft elements sometimes, but I also like to do it just for the mood another writer can put me in, you know? Um, it's kind of like, almost it's a different type of listening to a music playlist, I think. And I might even describe it as a type of community or mentorship because the author is sitting on my shoulder in a way. Um, I remember reading the novel Sheltering Skies several times once while writing a similar novel. And it was as if I hung out with Paul Bowles for a few years. Hmm, I love that idea. I do feel like that actually, because I feel like I think I've probably read heavy, you know, three times and I've listened to it twice. So yeah, you start to be kind of in communion with these authors that you love, which is very cool. Uh, well, to pivot back to Janine, she's been on my radar for a while. And uh, the reason that I finally reached out to her to ask her to be on the show was because of this article that she wrote in December called 11 Urgent and Possibly Helpful Things I Have Learned About Writing from reading thousands of manuscripts. And I just devoured that. I, I loved all 11 points that she made. Uh, and it got me thinking about 
astute observation, you know, and what it takes to train yourselves to start to look for things in manuscripts. And of course, not all readers do this, nor should they. Obviously, coaches and editors, we have to. But I think her observations are interesting because they're not the typical ones that I've seen when we talk about craft. You know, she's not saying like, oh, people should be more specific in their characterization or people should add more sensory details to their scenes, which are totally important, but you just see that stuff a lot. And instead, she's really talking about things like exteriority, aboutness, uh, writing on purpose, time control. And I'm going to link to the uh, piece in the show notes because it's so good. And I really think all writers should read it. Uh, But like about exteriority, she writes, the more closely you can observe and record the world outside of yourself without making it into a story and or making it into something about you, the more successful you will likely be ultimately in writing a compelling story and or revealing something profound about yourself. Uh, And I just really love that. You know, it's like thinking about how you reflect inside yourself versus what you see outside yourself, how you're writing about those things. They're all really important concepts to grasp. And I also really liked how Janine framed this whole article as what she's been seeing while reading other people's work and then using that as a critique in a sense, but also a way to teach. And so I felt really inspired uh, in reading that just to broaden my own lens to consider some of the things that she's talking about that I'm grappling with in my own writing. And I talk with my writers all the time, like the people I work with, my students, my coaching clients, uh, about this idea that you have to make your scenes work for inclusion in your book, right? And so she was giving voice to this idea of how we contribute to that work, you know, how we are the driving force of, of what goes in the book, you know, and so things like how we pay attention, how we consider exteriority or meaning making, you know, all of this experience and processing um, and refining and revising, it's essential, you know, and yet it's rare to find places to learn about this stuff, I think, you know, outside of maybe intensive coaching processes. Um, what do you think about that, Grant? Yeah, you know, while while I was listening to you, I was just thinking about how I, you know, that whole question of can you teach writing? Can writing be learned? Can good writing be learned? Rather, mm. you know, it's it's a question that's always out there, and I just have no prescription for writers. You know, I was, I was thinking that the way one learns to be a writer is, in many ways, just a mysterious thing. And I, for instance, I don't know how much I've learned just by osmosis from reading over the course of a lifetime. You know, I can't quantify that, but I've obviously learned a lot, and you know, I often read craft books and I read craft books not to say I'm going to learn this this one lesson or these five lessons about plot. You know, I, I read them mainly just to ponder the act of writing and kind of just, you know, keep thinking about it. And, you know, the same goes for writing workshops. You know, some say, say that the main thing you get from them is training and how to read stories so you can read your own stories through that objective filter of the reader. And I'm sure that's true. And I'm sure you learn a bunch of other stuff. But when I, you know, I've taken writing workshops and I have also questioned how much should I really learn by doing that? I think I think we're always just by picking up uh, lessons by being engaged and, and, and trying uh, different things. So I feel like my writing advice is sometimes just to follow your nose, you know, engage, do it, read, listen to this podcast, read some more, <laughs> write, you know, rinse, write, repeat. But Brooke, you know, going back to Janine, I think it's really fun uh, to hear that you were so inspired by what she wrote and that you wanted to bring her on to talk about some of this stuff. And I know that she also framed that article um, as the patterns she noticed while working on manuscript evaluations. And since 
since you do a lot of manuscript evaluations yourself, uh, what kind of patterns do you see most often in your work that feel worth sharing before we bring Janine on? Yeah, I mean, the more you read, the more you see that. And I think one of the benefits of reading stuff that's actually not yet totally ready is that you see those patterns and then there are things that you can implement into your teaching. And so I thought it would be good maybe just to touch upon the one of the biggest ones for each uh, genre, right? Because in memoir, I obviously do a lot more memoir evaluations. And so in memoir, I think time markers are absolutely the number one thing that I see, you know, just people not being in control of time, not paying attention enough to that because they live their lives and they kind of know when things happen. And so there can be a tendency to create a lot of confusion and chaos if you don't really anchor your reader in time. So that's that's one. And then, as I said, I encourage everybody to read Janine's Substack for more. Uh, and then in fiction, I feel like the thing that I'm most often seeing, I mean, people know this, but they don't, you know, it's just the head jumping. Um, It's surprising to me, you know, when I read or or evaluate manuscripts for beginning novelists, you know, just how often that's a problem. And so it's really like paying attention to point of view, who is the primary character, from what lens are they seeing the world? So that sort of anchor, you know, it's another form of anchoring, right? This idea that you really just have to pay attention to where you are in fiction, whose head you're in. Um, And all of this stuff, you know, as I'm thinking about it, really just made me fall in love with writers all over again, because it's so much stuff, you know, it's hard, like, we put ourselves out there, we're also learning at the same time. Um, You know, when you're writing true, and when you're writing truth, right, in in either genre, you're really putting your self on the line all the way. And so, um, yeah, I, I just hope that we all remember, you know, with the books that we're, that we're writing and pushing out into the world, obviously, we're trying to reach people, you know, reach the heart of a few readers, if we're lucky, many, many more. Um, and it's always just about putting the best version of what we can out there. And that's what's essential. Yeah, absolutely. I always say that I, I, I really only write for one reader's comment, you know, like if I can touch one person, it's just so magical to me. And, and, and that's absolutely true. I mean, it is magical and it is worth it. So call me dumb, but that's the way I work. So sorry, so, <laughs> Never sorry, that person, sorry, that person who gave me that advice I ignored about how to write a bestseller. Um, but let's see what Janine has to say about all this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Janine Olette, the author of the memoir, The Part That Burns. She also has a children's book, Mama Moon, and she's written several educational titles. Her stories and essays have appeared widely, and she's the recipient of multiple awards and prizes, including two recent Pushcart nominations. Janine teaches creative writing at the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop and is the founder and director of Elephant Rock, an independent creative writing program in Minneapolis. She earned her MFA in fiction from Vermont College of the Fine Arts. She's currently working on her first novel. Janine, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. And I want to start with some questions about the structure of your memoir. 
it's beautiful, by the way. So, so thank you. And it's described by others as a lot of different things. Some have said it's fragmented. Uh, sometimes people call the chapters essays. It's also been said they're vignettes. Uh, you sometimes write in the past and present tense throughout the book. You organize the book into different sections. And I noticed like clumping chapters into sections at different times that revolve around dogs you had growing up. And then uh, the middle part of the book has more traditional chapters, but you're experimenting and you're rule breaking, playing with subheads. And so, you know, as a person who's obsessed with structure myself, I was really curious to know more about your organizing principle. And, you know, how did you put this thing together? Was it organic or was it highly orchestrated? That That's a wonderful question. And it's always the hardest one for me to answer because it's a little bit of all of that. Mm-hmm. So I think the the most honest way for me to talk about that is to describe what the book's DNA is, how it came to be, which is that I entered into Vermont College of Fine Arts, VCFA, um, to study fiction. I was working on a novel. And in fact, and this is a long story, I won't get into telling, that's the novel that I'm working to complete right now. While I was doing that, I was simultaneously working on these memoir pieces. And part of my motivation for doing that was, you know, I think a lot of people in the MFA program feel like I need to be building up my CV. I want to have a really nice track record of publication when I leave here. At least that for me, that was really important. And so I, you know, I, I, the novel material wasn't ready for that. So I was working on these other things and sending them out and they were, um, they were really being well-received. So, you know, it's the memoir work that got the pushcart nominations. They were, you know, placing in contests and winning some contests. And so about halfway through my program, I realized I think I'm making a book I think I'm making a different book. And so I switched, you know, I switched my creative thesis halfway through and I started working on this material and finished it by the time I left the program in a way that doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to what it eventually became. But I did, I did, I did try a couple of times sending that out and I got some really positive feedback from agents it was very fragmented. It was a, it was essentially the structure at that time was vignettes. They were mostly much shorter than what's in the current published version. And they were in largely chronological order. So if you imagine the book as it currently exists, and then imagine going in and, you know, I like to think like, in more old school terms, because I'm old enough to have done this, but where you actually go in and cut it up with a scissors and then take, you know, all of the scenes and, and stretch them out into, yeah, small vignettes that were largely chronological. That's kind of what it looked like. But agents told me that, you know, they weren't really, you know, it was experimental and they weren't really sure how to, that they could market it. That's a, you know, we hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that it would be really interesting. And, you know, I had a few tell me, I, I'd love to, you know, see either another project or, you know, if this had a, a stronger narrative arc. So I 
went back to the drawing board, and then I rewrote the whole thing as a novel. <sighs> and I just, I think, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that that weren't, didn't have anything to do with structure or sales or marketing. And in part, it's difficult material. And I think I was kind of leaping at the chance and the idea of maybe what if I didn't actually have to face all of the complications of publishing this as a memoir. And so I did that. I rewrote it as a novel. Um, and, you know, it, it didn't not work. That version of the manuscript was a finalist in the Autumn House novel contest. I think that was 2018. So like it did have some, you know, it did have some oomph. Like I think it could possibly have worked. But, but at that time, I just realized that a couple of things happened and and then I'll get to the end of this answer, <laughs> but this is the hardest question to answer. I, I went to, a, I, I was at a Tin House winter workshop working with Dorothy Allison, who's one of my literary icons. And I was workshopping the chapter Four Dogs, Maybe Five. It, it was a very different version of it, but Dorothy really loved that chapter. That's how I ended up getting, you know, a blurb from her for the book. And and when I had my individual meeting with her, she said, you know, this is a book. And I said, well, I mean, I don't, you know, I feel like it is, but I've been publishing these standalone pieces. And she said, that's how it works. That's what I did with Bastard. That's exactly how it works. That's what you, you know, you, you just figure out how to put them together and there's your book. And it was so empowering. It was very freeing and very empowering. And so I... I kind of returned to that and I took the pieces that had existed, the pre-existing and, you know, previously published pieces. And I, and then I have, I wrote new pieces. I wrote connective tissue and I had to do some pretty heavy revision to make sure that whatever repetition remained was intentional, was on purpose and was creating the right kind of, foreshadowing and echoing and, you know, pointing toward transformation. So there was still a lot of work to be done, but that's what I did. And as soon as I submitted that version of the manuscript, like within a couple of months, I had the offer for publication. Wow, Janine, thank you so much for sharing that story of your journey. It was fascinating on several different levels. And I personally related to, I guess, different chapters <laughs> within that. <laughs> I've had the same reception for, for work that I've uh, put out there. And uh, it seems like, you know, you've obviously made so many different storytelling decisions in the course of that journey. And I just wanted to zero in on Brooke's question about tense because Lots of writers struggle with what tends to write in, but memoirists, you know, maybe more so than other writers. And I've heard a lot of memoirists say that present tense helps them to access their emotions better, but it's also difficult to carry an entire book in present tense. I've never been able to do it, but you do both. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you can share with our listeners about tense and what do you say to the writers you work with when they're struggling uh, with, you know, what's the better tense to write their work? I love that question because no one's ever asked me before and I think full transparent disclosure would be that part of the reason that I permitted myself to use both past and present tense in the manuscript is because it was in the DNA of the original pieces, despite that it's unconventional to do that in a book-length work. Although um, Abigail Thomas does that really successfully in 
Safekeeping, which is also a, you know, a fragmented and non-traditional memoir. I think for me that when I think about the decisions that we make, so much is about cost and benefit analysis. So what do you gain and what do you lose? And with present tense, I think that if we were to look at the manuscript or look at the book, present tense is primarily used when I'm presenting a child narrator. So in in that way, present tense is something of a constraint. The child narrator is limited in a sense to what she can know and perceive in that given moment. Present tense puts some breaks on the reflective voice. You know, it, it doesn't eliminate it. It doesn't make it impossible to reflect, but it certainly puts the brakes on slipping into the reflective voice accidentally, which I think, you know, is problematic. And because of, again, because of the kind of material that I was working with, for me, that child nar- narrator was really key to the success of the project because she's able to present some experiences and some events that are really difficult. A lot of people, um, you know, can just say this, you know, on the podcast to listeners that the book does deal with childhood sexual abuse. And it's absolutely true and fair that there are readers out there who are going to say, I just can't even pick up a book that would deal with that topic. I don't want to read about that. And so, you know, for me to be able to write what my, what my hope was, was despite the fact that the book deals with a difficult topic of abuse and its aftermath, that if I could successfully present that in a way that was beautiful and that was really respectful of a reader's, um, to, to not hand someone a box of darkness is the way I like to think about it, but rather to really take it very seriously that I'm making art out of something. And so that present tense child narrator was a, was a really conscious choice um, to be able to work with material in a way that would make it, yeah, safe and um, to, to make it a journey that someone might actually want to take and get to the end and say, you know, I wouldn't necessarily obviously wish those experiences on anyone, but I'm glad that I got to be a companion on this journey. Thanks for that, Janine. And, you know, another thing you do that I find interesting in the book is how you work with time and how you're very directive with time somehow um, (laughs) that works in a way that I just haven't seen other memoirs pull off very well. So uh, you pull into the future, which is something that I try to teach my own memoir students to do, you know, to stay anchored in where you are. And at the same time, if you want to like show what hasn't happened yet, that there's a good way to do that. And so I thought it would be helpful for you to read a little passage that I had, uh, asked you or sent you about because you write this early in the book and you clearly let the reader know that you're four years old and then you write this little section. So could you read that? And then I will uh, ask the rest of the question. Absolutely. Like I said, it's fall, not winter. And I am four years old. We are in the greenhouse on the steepest hill, the house before we moved to the gray one on 24th Avenue. 
At the Gray House, we will have a corner store with a dusty wood floor and penny candy and a screen door that bangs. Mama will let me walk to the store by myself because I will be five and then almost six. At the Gray House, we will get a braided rug and some macrame plant holders. Rachel will be born. She will be half of my sister. I will learn to rock her when she cries because her crib will be in my room. I will learn to wring out her dirty diapers in the toilet. It doesn't stink when you love someone enough, Mama will say. I will try to love Rachel more. But all of that is in the next house. On this night, in the greenhouse on the steepest hill, a little dog barks outside our door, and Mama opens it to let him in. Thank you for reading that. And, you know, I chose that section because there are actually a lot like it in the book to showcase how you pull forward in time and how you make use of the future tense to talk about things that haven't happened yet. And it also really anchors the reader uh, about where exactly you are and where you're going to be. So could you talk about guiding the reader in that way and how you think about time management when you write? Well... I, I want to think about, I want to parse out that question and maybe take the second part first. Um, I'm, I'm currently obsessed with time management. And I, I don't think that was as true when I was working on the memoir, but I don't doubt that the experience of working in a really unconventional way with time is a part of how I became obsessed with time management and became more just increasingly aware of it and the impact that it has in a work, which also comes from, you talked about your memoir students, and I'm sure you feel similarly. I learn so much from working with their work and working with manuscripts. And so I think that because I, because I was working in a non-chronological way from the start, um, like I said, there was a there was a moment when the manuscript became more chronological, but that was reverse engineered. The actual building of it was always non chronological, and I think that you know one of the ways that I like to think about this issue is that what are the what are we asking of the reader? What demands am I making on the reader? So this isn't you know dissimilar to the idea of the present tense, except that was like demands in the emotional realm. And in this case, it's sort of the attentional realm. What am I asking of the reader in order to be able to, to follow me? And whenever we're playing around with time and moving through time in an, in a non-chronological way, we're placing a higher burden on the reader, just undoubtedly, unequivocally, we're asking more human beings, um, expect things, you know, to, to move from beginning, middle to end. It were extremely temporal. And so, um, yeah, so just being aware um, of the fact that I was placing an additional demand on the reader, I think raised the stakes for me in terms of clarity of time and wanting to assure that that the reader, despite the fact that I was um, not moving in a straight line, that the reader would be able to stay with me. So I think that's that's the answer to the first part, or that's my attempt to answer that first part about time management. Is just that I, I think it's an imperative, yeah, that we have as as not just memoirists but writers, if we're telling a story, just to 
ensure that the reader knows where they are in time and why. Um, and I think that with regard to zooming into the future, um, your question about that, I think that, I mean, in this passage that you had me read out loud, what what I'm trying to establish there really early on is the itinerant nature of this child's life, that at, even at this young age, she's organizing time by which house she lived in. And so, you know, the narrator in the scene is for, so I have this way of thinking about narration and time. And I like to think, and I've been clarifying this, so this is a work in progress, but you have your protagonist. And so the protagonist in this scene is for, and then there's the narrator. And the narrator in this scene can't actually be exactly for, because she knows about something that happens in the future. But she is narrating from a point in time very close to the age of the protagonist. She's a child narrator, so and she's speaking in a childlike voice. So she's she's narrating in close proximity to the to the protagonist. And then there's us as the writer. And we, of course, and this is specific to memoir, but novel writing too, I think, because you know, once we kind of know what's gonna happen, we know more than the narrator or the protagonist. And so I I feel like being able to very purposefully control that dial, it gives us, it's a superpower. When you're really aware of that, I call it the gap. I tried to do a video about this on my Patreon, but this idea of really closing that gap or opening it and doing it on purpose, really being clear about it. A lot of it has to do with what we're, what we're willing to reveal and what we're withholding and why based on what effect it's going to create. And so like in this case, like I said, the effect that I think I was hoping to create is to at least subtly give a reader a sense of, you know, the way this child thinks in terms of her life organized by different places that, that she lives and what will happen in each of those places. So that was the benefit of revealing something that would happen in the future in this moment rather than waiting until it's actually happening. Well, Janine, I'm going to switch directions of uh, the questions just a little bit here. Um, you know, you have a, a popular Substack, and and I also have a Substack newsletter. And sometimes I struggle with whether this is where I should be putting my writing energies and time. But that said, one of the reasons I do it is that I really just want to be in conversation with readers, and they inspire me and guide me in their way. So I'm curious, what have you learned about your following and your readership with your newsletter, and how does that inform your writing? And do you have any advice for others who want to start one? Well, full disclosure is my Substack is really new. I just launched it in November. So just like nine weeks ago. And at the time, I was actually, <laughs> I, I really just wanted to escape from MailChimp forever. <laughs> you know, that was kind of my main and, you know, maybe not sole motivation, but I've had a newsletter attached to my website for ever since I've had my website, which is, you know, going on 12 years now. And I've always found MailChimp really hard to use and 
um, yeah, I'm very, I don't have a lot of technical, like I, I, yeah, I'm not really good at, at those sorts of things. So it's not my skill set, And I, I found it always laborious and frustrating, but necessary. So I, um, you know, kind of became aware of Substack sometime in the last couple of years and kept thinking I really should switch my newsletter over to Substack. And finally, um, got somebody to help me do that. And then, like I referred to earlier, I had about a year ago started a Patreon page where really my aim was to build community and have a yeah, have a space where I could um, build and deepen community, especially for, you know, in my imagination, this was primarily students who are already studying with me and really want to take it to another level. And so, um, yeah, so my, so I was doing writing prompts once a week over there anyway. And so I thought, oh, I'll just do that on Substack and combine it. And so that, and, and the, and the monthly newsletter that I was doing for, patrons on Patreon, I would move that to Substack. And so I didn't really expect it to, to be any, I didn't, wasn't asking it to be anything more than what I was already doing, but Substack, you know, I would just say, um, at least my experience, my, my brand new, very naive experience is that it's, it's, it is a really supportive place for writers who are wanting to be in community with other writers and do that, like, you know, with a newsletter format as the foundation, because I just started to get a lot of, um, a lot of engagement really fast, way, 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 way faster than I, I I wasn't, I wasn't even trying to do that. So the fact that it happened felt like almost passive, like, oh, wait, okay, well, I, I guess I should actually, um, lean into this a little bit since it seems to be something that people want, and so that's kind of what happened. Um, and then that I, you know, I began to write more. I mean, really, I, I'm just telling you all the whole truth here. I Because it was growing and because engagement was happening in ways that I wasn't expecting, I thought, well, I, yeah, I, sh- I should actually try. And so um, one of the things that and this makes sense to me intuitively, Substack says, well, you should have a lot of valuable free content, you know, if you want people to pay you for your newsletter and do paid subscriptions, you know, why not um, make it clear that you have something of value to say? And that made sense to me. It's kind of how I operate anyway. So I, but since those other, like the monthly newsletter and the writing prompts were already, um, because of the complication of Patreon, patrons were getting those as a paid benefit for being on Patreon. So I thought, well, what can I do that would be free that would also be valuable? So I thought, well, I'll I'll share my thoughts, you know, about craft um, as, you know, as they come to me spontaneously on no particular schedule. And so that's what I did. And it has, you know, in a small scale way, you know, um, I think struck a chord and, and it's been fun because it gives me a place to, I think we all probably as writers can identify with this, but there's nothing like trying to put your thoughts into writing to help you clarify what you're actually thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely. And you've been on my radar for a really long time, but then one of my friends sent me the piece that you wrote called 11 and uh, 11 urgent and possibly helpful things I have learned about writing from reading thousands of manuscripts. And I loved it. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, we have to get her on the show. 
you know, after all these months that you had been on my radar. And so I wanted to just ask you about that piece. I love the section in particular about aboutness. Uh, you wrote aboutness is the middle ground between those broader, deep themes and what happens or plot of your piece. Aboutness is what we need to pin down when writing jacket copy. Aboutness is related to the point of view character and what she wants and the misbeliefs that get in the way of her getting it. And and you go on and it's great. Everyone will, needs to read it. I'll send, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, aboutness is so little taught, you know, it's importance, why writers have to think about it. Um, and you write about it really elegantly. So could you talk about how this came up as one of the 11 urgent things you wanted to share with your readers? Uh, yes. Okay. So two mainstreams that fed into that one is that I teach a workshop that I've been teaching since the very beginning of the pandemic, like the first thing I did when we went into lockdown in Minnesota and I had to cancel everything like we all did is start a virtual workshop, which was really just for the purpose of a lifeline, you know, for myself and, and anyone else who was feeling terrified of what was happening and what was coming toward us. And I called that workshop writing in the dark. And what we did then, and it's obviously it's evolved and refined since the beginning, but it's always been based on a close reading of a short work and that and a writing exercise. And then a, a piece that's evolved over time is flash workshops for participants. And one of the ways that I've found to be really helpful when you're when you're talking when you're doing a, cl a pretty fast close reading, it's a two hour workshop, so that's a lot to fit into two hours. And when you're wanting it to be valuable, which is really important to me. It's like, how can we talk about this piece in ways that are not subjective and actually learn from it, like really dig into the craft of it. And I find that talking about aboutness is a wonderful portal toward that. So, um, and, and it's really interesting, Brooke, like what it reveals in terms of what, what we tend to assume, like you just sit around and you can talk about a piece and you assume that everyone is thinking that the same thing happens and it's about the same thing, but that's not true at all um, when you actually talk about that in a group. And so, um, yeah, so it's, and then, and then that allows you to really look at what has the writer done? Like, what did this writer do to create this effect? So that's what we do in the workshop. And we do that with each other's work as well, which reveals a lot to the writer. It's much more, um, in terms of what the writer can take away and, you know, take action on is really substantial compared to maybe just hearing what worked for people or what didn't work because, and, and I think George Saunders from what I've learned from his um, swim in the pond in the rain and also his Substack teaches in much the same way. Like you can't really know how to, how to talk about someone's work until you reach a certain plateau where everyone is, you know, understanding, including the writer and with work in progress, that can be really tricky. Like, because sometimes we don't even know yet, what is this thing and what is it trying to be about? So anyway, so that that's one part. And then the other part that inspired that post, um, all of it, not just the aboutness was that I had just come home from Mexico teaching a manuscript retreat where we, I had 13 participants, you know, who had their 20 page excerpts and synopses 
of their long form work in progress. And each, you know, participant had a dedicated workshop and then also received written feedback from everyone, including me. So it was, a, you know, that's a, I'm, I know because you teach, you can relate that you're, when you do that in a very compressed period of time, so it was a seven day re retreat where they turned in the work a couple of months in advance. So I really had been swimming in this work, mm -hmm. um, you know, to the point where, when you do that, it, that all that work and the people who created it and the stories that are trying to be born is more real than anything else. Like it just becomes a world in itself. And that's the world I was living in. And so I, what I wanted to do while it was all still really fresh is sit down and try to write it out. Um, like I said that, you know, there's nothing, you know, that raises the stakes on one's own clarity than to try to put it into writing and let someone else read it and hope that it's helpful. And so that's, that's what I was doing there. Um, in trying to talk about aboutness, um, yeah, um, was to, to be able to put it into language, um, that a writer might be able to use to look at their own work. Well, thank you for writing the piece. And as I said, we're going to share it in the show notes. It's awesome. And one of those ones that I'll go back to read uh, more and more in the future. So Janine, thank you. And thank you for being on the show with us today. Thanks so much, Janine. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, it's a real honor. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. So, Brooke, I have to ask you about Spare, Prince Harry's memoir. It's obviously now officially a trend we have to discuss because it broke best-selling debut memoir record, selling more than 400,000 copies uh, just in the UK and, well, nearly a million and a half worldwide on its very first day, which I understand is more than President Obama's memoir, A Promised Land, and it's more by several hundred thousand copies. Are you surprised? You know, I am. Uh, and mostly it's because I truly believed that because Harry and Meghan had been out talking about their lives and their grievances with the royal family for the past, what, like two years more, that there just wouldn't be this massive appetite for the memoir. But I miscalculated the manic obsession that the Brits and the rest of the world have for the royals, clearly. Me too. And that also goes for most of the media commentators, uh, I think, many of whom predicted quite the opposite. Um, this is a very high-profile ghost-written memoir, and part of why it's getting so much literary attention and accolades is because Prince Harry partnered with J.R. Moringer. And I know you taught Moringer's book, The Tender Bar, and clearly hold him in, in high regard as a memoirist. We should also note that he, he wrote Andre Agassi's memoir, Open, which was widely acclaimed as well. So I'm just curious, did J.R. Morgan as author change your perceptions about Spare in terms of, you know, giving you hope that it'd be more than just another celebrity memoir? For sure. Yes. And I haven't read Spare yet. So that needs to be said. Um, gosh, I, I feel like I probably end, will end up because I just keep seeing so much about it. But I was like, uh, do I want to read this? I'm not sure. Um, I already know what the royals are doing because you have to be hiding under a rock not to. And <laughs> even if you were adamantly like, no, I am under this rock and I don't want to know, you still can't avoid it. My God. But I will say that I've read a lot of reviews because I love J.R. Moring. 
character. And I've been really curious to hear how they were going to talk about him. Um, and my favorite review to date is the New Yorker piece um, that really just gave all the writing credit to Moringer, like explicitly noting Prince Harry's literary shortcomings, which is kind of mean. But, you know, it, the, the writer of the New Yorker piece spoke to Harry's disinterest in, uh, in Shakespeare, for instance, even as Moringer super explicitly uses Hamlet's journey as an organizing principle for the book. And then later that New Yorker piece speculated whether Harry actually even knows what a book is <laughs> because at one point Harry suggested that the media has written quote, countless books about him and Megan. And of course they haven't written books. They've been reporting on him. So, you know, I'm not below enjoying a writer poking a little bit of fun at someone who's getting so much attention and book sales just for being a celebrity. I certainly understand the appeal of the celebrity memoir, but it is a little bit annoying. Yeah, I remember that this was one of the major points of your TEDx talk. Uh, the celebrity, what, how, how should we say this? The celebritization <laughs> of book publishing. Yeah, that's a weird word. <laughs> yeah, but it's very accurate. And just how this creates a culture where the big publishers are always chasing that next big book, uh, which is entirely about celebrity. And I see this happening more and more and more, unfortunately. Yeah. And look, publishing is a business and it's going to happen because celebrities sell books and these massive memoir moments. I mean, are they good for the genre? I don't know. I think they sit outside the genre in a certain way. Like, I'm really happy that J.R. Moringer wrote this book and I have no doubt that it's gorgeously written. But the accumulation of celebrity memoirs, I don't actually think it does anything for the genre. If you think about it, you know, Spare really is a biography, not a memoir, because it was written by someone else. So it's an authorized biography, but we're all calling it a memoir. Yeah, that's an interesting point about it being a biography. I remember Charles Barkley claiming that he was misquoted, referring to his own memoir, <laughs> which I thought was perfect because it really brought celebrity memoirs home. And I never thought about how celebrity memoirs can, can you know, not really be additive to the genre or how they can even tarnish it. So I'm, I'm, can you go further with that, Brooke? Yeah, because it's about the gossip, right? Like, that's why it's selling so much. And again, yes, it's well written, which is great. And thank you, JR, for the Shakespeare. But I'm not going to be teaching Spare in any forthcoming memoir course. And people aren't reading Spare for the prose, though they're surely going to be pleasantly surprised if they didn't know what a great writer Moringer is. Uh, but it's also salacious, right? And it, therefore very tabloidy. And at the same time, you know, it's getting great reviews because it's well told. And on that front, I just say kudos to Penguin Random House and to Harry for choosing the writer they chose. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's a good moment for ghostwriters, too, because so often they stay in the background and don't get any attention. Uh, but in this case, J.R. Moringer is getting a lot of accolades and credit. And I actually remember how much praise Andre Agassi's memoir got. And it must be just be so odd to receive praise without really receiving it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and that's why I say it's really a biography. Uh, but the lines get pretty blurred unless you're a memoir purist like I am. But, you know, I digress. <laughs> well, I hear you. And, and like you, um, I don't have any plans to read this. I, I've absorbed plenty of it just by being alive and hearing about it. And I'd, I'd love it if those millions of sales could go to more interesting books. Um, but, you know, like you said, it's, it's people like the celebrity memoir. 
But uh, listeners, it doesn't look like we're going to be featuring Prince Harry on Right Minded anytime soon. Should we turn him down, Brooke, if his publicist gets to us? Definitely not. We would take him. <laughs> okay. okay. We can, <laughs> I'm not below we can that compromise either. our vision. But anyway, we will feature other fascinating authors who tell interesting stories and who tell interesting stories about how they tell interesting stories. So join us next week for another episode of Right Minded. 